Grace Family Church of Rhode Island presents Word of Hope, a sermon series with Pastor Luciano Cozzi. Welcome. The Word of Hope sermon series is a ministry of Grace Family Church of Rhode Island. It was instituted to bring sound teachings from the Word of God to as many people as possible. Our purpose is to offer you a message that is both practical and contemporary, that brings the Word of God to light in a way that makes sense in daily life. As you listen to this message, it is our hope and prayer that the Lord will bless you through it and bring you hope, comfort, and guidance. And now, Pastor Katsi. In the message today that I have for you, I would like to talk about myopia. Myopia, also known as short-sightedness or near-sightedness. Myopia is a problem of the vision in which the eye concentrates or focuses the images in front of a retina instead of on the retina. So in people that suffer from myopia, the objects that are farther, further away appear all blurry and, and sometimes confused, and those who are close to the eye are instead in focus. But we suffer from spiritual myopia as well. Spiritual myopia obviously is not quite blindness. It happens when we do see some things, but not quite clearly. In spiritual myopia, we have the inability to see what really matters in life, because we tend to focus so much on the moment, on what is really close to us instead of maybe the big picture. During good times, at least during good times by our own standards, our spiritual myopia is barely, barely seen, barely detectable, and that is because we tend to concentrate so much on what is right in front of us and what right is right here and now, in, in the moment, and on ourselves, that we don't notice it. We don't notice that we are suffering from spiritual myopia, but yet it still causes a distortion in perspective. It distorts our perspective of what really matters. It distorts our perspective of what is the purpose of life, the purpose of what we go through, the purpose of what we experience, in the moment as well as in the long term. But obviously it's not always a good time. And so there are some trying times, times of trials when things don't quite go our way, when we realize that we we just fooling ourselves into thinking that we can be in control, but we are not. When everything changes. Everything changes because we lose that control. We feel like we have nothing that, that we can do. And that is a state that I found some members of my family in Italy to be in right now. They, they just keep saying there is absolutely nothing that we, can, that we can do. We just don't have any control at all. And in those moments, 
everything changes because fear grips our hearts. And we experience turmoil, insecurity, anxiety, worry. We realize for the first time that our spiritual vision is not quite what it should be. Even people who normally don't even think about God right now are asking for prayers. And they acknowledge that they are needed, very needed. But what we focus on is not quite the way we think it should be, including our perspective of God and His plan. So we raise our eyes, we look elsewhere to, to find answers, but things seem to be blurry, confused, and, and we ask a lot of questions that don't have an answer. We find very few answers, if any. These questions, for the most part, whether we realize it or not, are theological questions. Questions that, until we face trials, sometimes are neglected. We do know some things. We're not completely spiritually blind. We do know some things about God, but, but in those moments, they don't seem to match our expectations anymore. They don't seem to make sense anymore. Peace is often lost. And trust is eroded and becomes lacking, including faith, the trust toward God. But yet we're fighters, aren't we? We don't like to lose control, so we put on our control freak hat and we try to control everything around us. We try to find the answers. We don't accept the state of things, and so we intensify our search. But we search all too often in the wrong places. And we experience disappointment, which makes things even more difficult. But we do have good news. What is the good news? The good news is that as Christians, we do have the answers. They are available to us. And not only for ourselves, but we have the answers for people around us as well, for our loved ones, for our families, our friends, our neighbors. Our calling right now from the Lord is to heal the spiritual myopia in ourselves as well as in our loved ones and and the people around us. And there is a cliche that is usually used in times like this. Jesus is the answer. I know, I know, we've heard it thousands of times. And we heard it so many times that it, it really in some cases, loses our meaning. But let's think about it for a moment. Remember, one of the miracles that Jesus performed was a miracle of giving sight to the blind. And he's still at work in that sense today, spiritually. He still reaches out to people who are spiritually blind and allows them to see something for the first time in their life, to see some answers. And he heals us too. He heals us of our spiritual myopia. But one thing that we may not like to know and hear is that he does that oftentimes through our trials, through our difficult times. I would like to take a moment to address the causes of spiritual myopia, but particularly one, a primary cause. It's like a spiritual virus 
that is passed on from person to person. And that spiritual virus is a fundamental lie that somehow, in some way, God wants to hold something back from us, something that is desirable, something that is good, something that we would enjoy, but he doesn't want us to have it. And so many people resent God. They resent religion. They resent Christianity because they feel like it takes away the fun in life. But brethren, nothing, nothing can be further from the truth. That's not quite the case, and I would like to show it to you. We need to remove that spiritual virus. We need to remove that lie and stop spreading it to others, either willingly or unwillingly or unintentionally, because sometimes by our own questions, by our own doubts, we spread that idea, that concept, that perhaps this life is everything there is, and we need to enjoy it as much as possible, because otherwise it's all wasted. But there is this God that tells us not to do this and not to do that, not to enjoy this or enjoy that. And so sometimes unintentionally we may end up spreading that idea. What is the vaccine for that spiritual virus? Well, that vaccine is God's precious truth. A truth, in fact, that is so precious that numerous people, countless people, in the past, they've been willing to sacrifice their life in order to preserve that truth for us and pass it on to us. And we need to appreciate that truth. We need to appreciate the sacrifice of so many before us and appreciate the fact that they have managed to preserve it so that we can benefit from it. What our spiritual myopia is all about is about what is important in life, what is truly important. And what is really important is not necessarily what is in front of us or about us in the here and now. Yes, the present is important, but without perspective, it loses meaning. We need that perspective. And so that perspective becomes very important, more important than the moment, because the moment changes in its meaning, in its purpose, based on that perspective. If we only concentrate on the moment, on the here and now, if we only concentrate on ourselves, then our vision is impaired. It blurs up the meaning of our life. It blurs up the purpose that God has for us. And it confuses us, especially during times of trial, during times of difficulty. But that precious truth is not something we need to go somewhere and search for it. We have it right in front of us. We have it in the pages of our Bible. We probably read over it many times. It's been in front of us all along. We're not inventing anything new or anything different here. But oftentimes, oftentimes we are too busy to notice it. We read it, yes, but we gloss over it. We seem to be so much in a hurry and we gloss over that and we don't seem to catch the depth and how profound the meaning of those words are. You know, during the times when the New Testament was inspired, during the time when the apostles and, and the evangelists wrote in the New Testament, 
things were not easy. Christians were persecuted. They were facing severe trials. Many of them were tortured and killed. And yet the instruction that God gave to them and through them all of us in times of trials, the instruction is very simple. Do not be anxious. Now you may wonder, wait, wait a minute. Don't be anxious for anything. In all things, give thanks to God. Rejoice even in your trials. Even that is found in the New Testament. In times of severe persecution, we are called to rejoice in our trials. How could that be? How is that possible? How can we do that? We need to understand it. And, and to understand it, I would like to draw your attention on Matthew 6, beginning with verse 25. Jesus had just spoken about the fact that we are not, we, we are not to serve two masters. We cannot serve two masters, wealth and God. And he had just finished saying that we are not to, to serve wealth. And immediately after, Jesus stated, For this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life. See, here we find it again, that instruction, don't be worried, don't be anxious. But he gives us a reason for that as well. He says, don't, don't be worried about your life as to what you will eat and what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. And he gives us a perspective here that is different from what we normally encounter. Is not life more than food? Good question. Isn't life more than food? Isn't the body more than clothing? And then he gives, us the ex he gives us the example of how God provides for the birds of the air. And as he does so, he reminds us with a question, are you not worth much more than they are? It points our attention on the lilies of the fields. And he reminds us that not even Solomon, in all his splendor and glory, was dressed like one of them, one of those lilies. And he asks us again that question. If God takes so much care for the grass of the field that is there today and tomorrow is burned up, will he not much more clothe you? And then he adds the phrase, O you of little faith. It is a matter of trust as well. It is a matter of perspective, and it is a matter of trust. And Jesus continued saying in verse 31, Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear for clothing? Because the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. That, in other words, is the way of the unbeliever. It's the way of those who don't have that perspective. It's the way of those that don't have that hope, that don't have that trust, the perspective that causes them to concentrate on the here and now and on themselves and what they get out of life. But the answers are not found there. Notice what Jesus adds. Your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. 
So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself, for each day is enough. Notice the instruction. Seek first the kingdom of God, not second, not as a leftover. Oftentimes we are so concentrated on the food and the drink and the clothing, all these things. By the way, these are not frills, these are not extra things. Those are essential things in life, yes, and that's what Jesus is talking about. But we're so concentrated about on those things and on the here and now and on ourselves that the kingdom of God and His righteousness only get the leftover of our hearts and mind. They seem to be last in the list. The cure for the spiritual myopia that we have rests in that statement. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. It's an important statement because it tells us that that should be first in our hearts and minds because as we put that first, then our perspective about life, our perspective about trials, our perspective about problems and the challenges that we face daily changes. It's the same thing that Paul later would say when he wrote to, to all of us through his letters to keep our eyes on the things above, on the things of God, because those are the things that really matter. After all, our life right now is only temporary. And now we see how frail it is and how easy it is for, for us to suffer and, and to die. But God has a life ahead for us that will never stop, that will never cease, that will never end. And that perspective is very important. We need to be able to see clearly in the distance as well. We need to be able to see not just what is in front of us, but what God sees for us. Otherwise, we lose sight of a glorious future that the Lord has given us, a future that is all important. Let's understand that. I would like to, to ask you to read Romans 8. Romans 8 is, is a beautiful chapter. A chapter that is many people's favorite, but yet I constantly find that people read it and miss some vital things that are contained right there that we read so often. Beginning with verse 16, through the Apostle Paul, God tells us that the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. I know we've heard that many times, yes, we're children of God, we're children of God. But what does that mean? Do we understand the depth of that statement? And do we understand that God, as a loving Father, cares so much about us? And I'll show you in a moment. But Paul continues in verse 17. He says, If children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed, indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Did you notice what Paul wrote? Did you notice that statement? First of all, we're children of God. As children, we're also heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. That means that we share the same inheritance as Jesus Christ. But then notice that phrase, if indeed we suffer with Him. Oh, we, don't, we don't like to read that, do we? 
because he talks about suffering. And we don't like suffering. None of us does. I don't. You don't. I know that. But Jesus Christ has taken our sufferings upon himself. Jesus Christ has redeemed our sufferings. And when we suffer, we don't suffer for nothing. Our sufferings are no longer useless. They are no longer in vain. They have meaning. They have purpose in him. And so as we suffer, not is not just if we suffer, period, but if we suffer it with him. That also means that he is with us, and he has not left us in our times of trials. He has not abandoned us in our trials and difficulties, but he is with us. And as we suffer, we're called to suffer with him. And I'll tell you, I don't like you, I don't like suffering, and I don't like that at all. But there's one thing I like even less. The idea to suffer for nothing. The idea that my pain, my suffering, my challenges, my problems are for nothing. And the good news that in him, as I share, as, as he carries my pain with me, and I share those moments with him, he redeems that pain and gives it meaning and he gives it purpose in a way that nothing else would do. Because look at the end of the sentence. Because if we suffer with him, we will also be glorified with him. And that is quite something, isn't it? Later, in verse 18, still in Romans 8, in, in verse 18, here's what Paul was inspired to share with the Romans and with all of us. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Let's not miss the message there. Paul is not just talking about the suffering, singular, of this present time. He's talking about sufferings, plural, of this present time. Let's take a look around. How much suffering is in the world right now? How many problems are in the world? How many problems that have there been in the world? The suffering that we witness and the suffering that we experience is staggering. And yet, even as big as the suffering is, Paul was inspired by God to write that it's not even worthy to be compared with the glory that God is going to be revealing to you, to us. So if the suffering is so staggering, how amazing, how great, how, I don't even have the word that the adjective is to describe it, how awesome must that glory be? God has something big in mind for you. But he continues. He says, For the anxious longing of a creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Did you catch that? Creation is eagerly waiting for God to reveal his finished work in you. Yep. Creation, all creation is eagerly waiting for you and for all of us. For the creation was subjected to futility, continues Paul, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. I, every time I read this, I go, wow, this is breathtaking. 
because you would read it, as you read it, you would expect it to say that creation is going to be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of God. But it doesn't say that. It said that it's going to be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The glory that God has given to you will reverberate throughout all creation. It will make a difference for all of creation. God has something big in mind for you and for all of us. Something that doesn't just affect us, but something that is going to affect the entire creation. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul worded it this way. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. It seems to me like Paul knew that that inheritance is too big, too much for us to grasp and to understand, and it is indeed. And so he was praying that the eyes of the hearts of the Ephesians would be enlightened. As I pray that the hearts of the eyes of your heart may be enlightened too. That God will remove the spiritual myopia from every one of us and replace it with a clear sight. A sight that enables us to see that God has an awesome purpose for all of us, regardless of our circumstances and sometimes fulfilled and accomplished through those circumstances. But notice that Paul addresses the riches of the glory of the, his inheritance in the saints. Amazing riches, not in the sense of finances or money, but in the sense of that glory that God shares with you. So what is our inheritance in Christ? We read earlier in Romans that we are follow, fellow heirs with Christ, that we are heirs of God as his children and fellow heirs with Christ. So what is his inheritance? I would like his own words to answer that question. In John 16, 15, Jesus stated, All things that the Father has are mine. All things that the Father has are mine. So if that is in his inheritance, and we are fellow heirs with him or co-heirs with him, if that is his inheritance and we share in that inheritance, our inheritance is the same. All things. So you see why I say that that lie is a treacherous lie, that God wants to hold something back from us, from you? When God shares all things with you, when God has adopted you as a, his child, and as his child he has an inheritance, and that inheritance includes all things. Can that actually be? Yeah, it is. And it's a sure thing. And there's more, too. I'd like to bring your attention to John 17 now. John 17 is a chapter that records a prayer that Jesus offered to the Father right after the Last Supper, before he and the disciples went to the Garden of Gethsemane, before he was captured to be crucified. He prayed to the Father, and as he prayed to the Father, he prayed not just for the disciples that were present there with him at that time, but for all who will believe through their word, which includes all of us. And as he was praying for us, in verse 22, 
Jesus prayed to the Father. And he said, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them. Do we understand that? Here is God the Son talking with God the Father and saying, The glory that you have given me. What is the glory that God the Father has given to God the Son? Brethren, that glory is what He has given to you, to us. Isn't that an amazing statement? That God the Son would share with us the glory that God the Father gave Him? But notice also, it is in the past tense. Notice also the fact that He doesn't say that He will share with us if. No, He said, I have given to them to you, to us. He continues in the prayer, says that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me. And yes, yes, we could preach numerous sermons on that. And we will. But notice the last sentence. That the world may know that you sent me and that you love them even as you love me. Once again, let's understand that statement. Here is God the Son talking with God the Father and saying that God the Father loves you even as God the Father loves God the Son. Do we have any reason to question that He is a loving God? That, as John says in his letter, God is love. And that love is toward you. But it's not just any love. It's the same love with which God the Father loves God the Son. God the Son shares with us, and He makes us part of that communion of love. It's quite amazing. But there's more, you know. In Revelation 3 and verse 21, we are told that He who overcomes Jesus said, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. We need to pause. We need to pray about it. We need to understand this, that you and I, all of us, we are going to be sitting with God on his throne. That means that God is going to share with us all things. God is going to share with us even his authority. God is going to share with us his kingdom. He's going to make of us kings and priests, as Scripture says. And that is absolutely mind-boggling. It is amazing. It is, it is so big. And it should be in the forefront of our hearts and minds. Does God care? After all this, as we know that God wants to share all things, all that he is, all that he has, all that he's created, he wants to share with us. Does God care? I would say a resounding yes. But I will be joining Peter. Because in his first letter, Peter, in chapter 5 and verse 7 of First Peter, Peter tells us to cast all our anxiety on him because he cares for you. Because God is a loving God. He hasn't left you. He has not abandoned you. Oh, sometimes it, it, it may seem like God has taken a vacation somewhere. God has is, is put himself on hold. 
or put us on hold. But he's very present. He's present in our joyful times. He's present when we celebrate. He's present when we mourn. And he reminds us, even through good old Solomon, that life is not just one thing, that there is a time to laugh and a time to cry, a time to celebrate and and have a feast and a party and a time to sorrow. Life is made of all things. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't love us. If something happens to us, it doesn't take away the love of God. It doesn't take away the security that we have in Him. It doesn't take away the fact that God still has that eternal, amazing purpose for all of us. And I would like to remind you about the end of chapter 8 of Romans. In Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 31, through the Apostle Paul, God tells us, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Or you might even say, what is against us? He, did not, he who did not spare his son, but delivered him over for all of us, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Notice once again what God's intention is and what God's purpose is. What that picture, the full picture, in, implies and includes all things. Verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who sits at the right hand of God and who also intercedes for us. And who will separate us from the love of Christ? If you worry about your future, then don't. Because your future is secure. Because the very one who will sit in the seat of judgment is the same one who gave his life for you. Is the same one who intercedes for you. Your future is secure. The future of your loved ones is secured. Again, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Those are the things that cause us to question God. Those are the things that cause us to be spiritually myopic. We end up questioning God. We end up questioning His love because things don't quite go the way we want them to go. And we don't understand. We don't seem to see things the same way He does. But notice what Paul continues saying. Just as it's written, For your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Yes, what if that was the case? What if people were persecuting us in such a way as they do in some other parts of the world? They're persecuting us in such a way that we are considered and regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Would, still, would that remove us from the love of God? Would that mean that God doesn't love us anymore? Keep reading. Verse 37. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer. Through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. No joyful time. 
no time of trial, no sorrow, no pain, not even a virus can ever separate us from the love of God. Nothing of the things that sometimes we use to accuse God of not loving us means that God doesn't love us. Let's not lose sight of that. We can be grateful for that. We can be grateful for the love of God. We can be grateful as the Lord uses our challenges and trials to point out and remove our spiritual myopia. To remind us of what really matters in life. To remind us that we're not living just for this fleeting moment, for the here and now, that, that this, in fact, even this life is not everything as we tend to think. There's so much more that God has in store for us. Our trials during this life are not useless. Our trials are not in vain. Our trials are not wasted. He has redeemed our sorrows and He has redeemed us. And we can be thankful. And if you were to ask me, and I, and I talk to so many people about these things, and, and I know that they would echo my words, and I would say amen to all that. If you were to ask me, I would tell you one thing. If I have to suffer, I would much rather suffer in Christ than to suffer without Him, because without Him, I would be suffering without hope. And so we can be thankful for that as well. We can be thankful because we're made free in Him. We are made free because He heals our spiritual myopia, and in that, in doing that, He gives us freedom. Freedom from anxiety and worry, because we know that we can trust Him. Even when the circumstances of life don't seem to go our way, we can still trust God because He is working out His perfect and awesome will. We are free from a relentless search and a futile search for perpetual happiness. It seems like our lives are to be lived in a way that is constantly always happy. But again, as I said earlier, Solomon reminds us that life is made of happy moments and of grief, good times and sad times. But as we're made free from that search for the perpetual happiness, because we know and we can trust that God has good for us, then we're also free from having to live this life just for ourselves, for what we get out of it for what we take out of it. And as we are free to live life for ourselves, we can live this life in Him and for others and for one another as He commanded us to do. We are free to live in Christ and to participate in Him or with Him in who He is and in what He does in His nature, which is a nature of love. We are free to express that love. A love that, as we read in Romans 5, verse 5, has been poured out in our hearts by the presence of the Holy Spirit. If you are a Christian, if you have a Holy Spirit, God has poured His love in your heart and is expecting you now to express that love and not just take it for yourself. In John 13, 34, Jesus Christ gives us a new commandment. 
He said, A new commandment to give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. What makes that commandment new is not that we need to love one another. That was in the Old Testament as well. But what makes it new is the fact that he tells us that we need to love one another as he has loved us. A self-sacrificial love. A love that puts the interests of the other person above our own. A love that gives of ourselves for the benefit of the person who is loved, of a beloved, and has done in Christ. A love that reflects, that expresses the very love of God that is poured in our heart. A love that one day will echo throughout the universe, throughout all creation, and will set creation free from its slavery to corruption. That, brethren, is our calling, to express that love, even in times like this, especially in times like this. That is our calling. So let us answer that calling and be instruments of His grace. There are great things and small things that we can do to express the love of God. One example of a small thing, well, we have elderly people that are so isolated And yet they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. We cannot go to see them. In fact, they can't even get out of their room, but they can't receive a telephone call. So please call them. Reach out to them. Remind them that you love them. Remind them that God loves them. And He's with them. And you are an instrument of His grace. Let us express His love, especially when things don't quite go the way we expect them to go. Because there are so many people around us with questions. Questions that we can answer. I would like to close in prayer. If you would like to join me, please. Lord, thank you for the hope you give us. Thank you for making us instruments of your grace. We ask you that you will give us hearts to respond to that. Lord, please allow us to see where we can serve, where we can serve you and and one another, even as we are careful about fulfilling the requirements, requirements requirements for isolation and, and quarantine that you yourself established long ago in the Old Testament. Give us the ability to abide to those instructions, but yet at the same time to still reach out to one another and express your love to one another. Remove our spiritual myopia. Grant us to see your plan, please, and not just our own will. And let your perfect will, let your perfect love be manifest in us, and let your perfect will be done in all of our lives as we surrender them to you. And we thank you for the preciousness of the moment, because each moment is precious not in it by itself, but is precious because you use it to accomplish your amazing purposes. So thank you, Lord. We praise you. We love you. And we appreciate your love and your plan and what you have in mind for us so much. Please give us encouragement and strength through our times of need and trials as we commit it all to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. 
If you have not yet received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, but you desire His forgiveness and grace, and would like to have a new, meaningful life rich with purpose, well, now is the time to make a decision. You may wonder what you should do. The answer is quite simple. You receive Jesus when you believe in Him and trust in Him and Him alone to save you. You see, He has given His life for you, taking your sins upon Himself on the cross. And He did that to save you and give you a new life to spend with Him in His glory for all eternity. First of all, acknowledge your sins and your need for the Savior. Repent. Be willing to change and turn away from your sins. Start listening to God and do what He says, instead of seeking your own ways. As you are repentant, then believe that Jesus died for you, and after three days, He rose from the dead. Then ask Jesus to live in you in the person of the Holy Spirit, and to be the Lord of your life. Next, if you really mean it with all your heart, talk to God, and tell Him about your repentance. Tell him that you accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord and ask him for his forgiveness. You don't need to talk to him with special words, just open your heart to him. Talk to him as if you were talking to someone that you know and see right in front of you. If you need some help, then pray with me, but pray with all your heart sincerely as if these words were your own. Dear God in heaven, I confess to you that I am a sinner. I have followed my own selfish ways and I have grieved you. I have done what is wrong and I have sinned against you. I need your forgiveness. Father, I thank you for the fact that Jesus has given his divine life for me. That he cares so much for me that he took upon himself the pain and the death that I deserve for my sins. I accept Jesus Christ as my personal Savior and His sacrifice as payment for my sins. I ask you, Lord, to rule my life and to guide me so that I may live in a way that pleases you. I invite you, Lord, to come into my heart. I want to trust you and follow you from now on as my Lord and Savior. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, my friend, find a Christ-centered and a Bible-believing church and join the body of Christ where the Lord Jesus will guide you and lead you in your new life. God bless you and yours.